We read now from God's Word in the book of Acts, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 12. We begin a new chapter. The attention goes back to Antioch in the church that was recently planted there. Barnabas and Saul co-laboring in verse 1 of chapter 13 of the book of Acts. Hear God's true and eternal word. And now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted, The Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had also John to their minister. And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him. By the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Thus far, and may God bless the reading of his word and let us see. We arrive then in chapter 13 in the book of Acts and. The very last verse of chapter 12 um, brought our attention after everything that happened to James, his martyrdom, and Peter, his arrest, but then his deliverance. There was that small notice in verse 25 of chapter 12 that Barnabas and Saul, having finished their ministry in Jerusalem, they returned to Antioch and Here in chapter 13, we see what ministry they gave themselves to. There was a new phase. They had been teaching the church and and working in the foundation of the church. But what we will see happen is, in essence, what gives the rise to what is 
commonly called the first missionary journey. It's a historical moment because, yes, the church has been growing. It's been expanding from, from Samaria to Damascus, Caesarea, and Antioch. But it has been, in essence, in response to those persecutions and the church is being dispersed. But now it's the first event where we have the church setting forth two missionaries and intentionally sending them in a direction where they will go. And we know they have a whole um, list of cities that they go through and they come back to Antioch. And Paul will do this three times. And in this first missionary journey, he goes with Barnabas. They also take with them, as you noted, um, John. And this is the John, John Mark, whose house Peter went to after he came out of, of the of his arrest. And so this John Mark wants to be part of this ministry. He's, he's there to serve them and to help them. So he stays at least in the first leg of the trip. And we'll, we'll return to what happens to him um, later. But we'll look at this passage um, following these, these three thoughts. First, the preliminary preparation. These first few verses, verses 1 through 3, where they're um, hearing the Holy Spirit call them. Um, to the ministry. They, they are praying and fasting. We'll, we'll consider some of that in our first point. Secondly, we'll, we'll look at preaching and resistance as they arrive in, in the island of Cyprus, that they'll start preaching, but they will be met with resistance. And then thirdly, we'll look at the power and authority. Um, we will find something very similar in this passage with the passages that we've been considering in our morning service um, in Isaiah, both last Lord's Day and this Lord's Day. Um, in Isaiah, Hezekiah is the one who is standing for the truth, but he is being met with great resistance from Sennacherib. And there is a great tension. There's really a spiritual battle going on. And, and we've been blessed to see how even though you might be part of a nation that is so so much smaller and would never have the power to fight against in Assyria. The, the, whole, um, the whole reality is completely changed when you consider the God whom you trust and that that's what matters. And we find the same thing happening here. So first of all, the preliminary preparation and this is to think not just a preparation of the church, but just some preliminary thoughts as we look at this whole passage. There's, there are really two things that we find the apostles and church leaders doing. If we are to summarize everything that these church leaders are doing, and we hear of the apostles, we remember it was the apostles who sent Barnabas to see what was going on in Antioch. And then, and then in Antioch they received those prophets who prophesied that there will be famine. And so the church leaders decide, Paul and, and Barnabas, take, take this money, take this offering to the Jews who are in Judea for when this famine comes. And it's all the leadership responding to God's providence. And there are these two things that we can say are happening. First, that they're simply obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the Lord Jesus gave clear instructions that they were to go everywhere, 
teaching the things that Jesus had taught and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus even spoke in terms of geography. He said, start here in Judea, go to Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. And this is what we've been seeing happening. And even even as they're dispersed, not so much necessarily that they're intending to go to Samaria, but even as they go, they are obeying the Lord Jesus in, in what He said. They go there and they teach. And people are baptized. And they are part of the church of the Lord Jesus. And then the second thing they're doing, even as, as they go on obeying the Lord, is that they are trusting. They are trusting the Lord, but in a very specific way, they are trusting in the power of the Word. Because that is what they teach, and that is what people are believing, and that is why they are being saved. People aren't being saved because they believe the miracles. They're not being saved because they see signs and wonders and they say, I want signs and wonders. There was the example of that other um, Simon who that is what he wanted and then that showed he was not saved. Um, But believers are those who are believing the message. And even in this passage, at the very end, we're going to go back to that. When this deputy, Sergius Paulus, is said to believe because of what he saw, you would say, well, yeah, he saw the judgment. That made him believe. No, it says being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. That is what saved him. And this is what... Saul and Barnabas and the apostles, Peter and James, what they're doing is they're, they're just trusting the power of the word. And you could say this, they're, they're, they're not trusting the power of how they deliver the word, exactly how the message is, is elaborated. They're not trusting human nature that they will meet nice people who because of their niceness might accept us. No, they are believing in the power of God. And, and this has been shown in a few of these examples where in many ways these are all unlikely converts. You think of that Ethiopian eunuch who was on a chariot going back home. And, and Philip is prodded by the Spirit to go in that direction. And when he goes, he is invited into the chariot. He, he is reading Isaiah and he explains that passage and leads them to Christ. That eunuch is baptized on his way to Ethiopia. And then, remember, um, it's also unlikely, more because you wouldn't imagine that Peter would feel the, the, the possibility to minister so openly to Cornelius. Yes, Cornelius was a man who feared the Lord. Um, and Peter is summoned to go to Cornelius and to minister to him. And he and his whole household and all who were visiting were converted in that one event. And now we're going to see another such conversion with this Sergius Paulus um, and and how um, God uses the word to bring him to himself. What we have so far is, and, and of course, of all of these conversions that I gave, perhaps the example that shows more without any kind of, because somebody could say he was, the Ethiopian was reading the Bible. Um, Cornelius was a God-fearing man. This Sergius Paulus invited Barnabas. So somebody could even say, yes, there was at least an interest and a goodwill in the hearts of all of these. But we have the example of Saul, who was on his way to Damascus to persecute believers. And it's in that direction that he is stopped in the way 
and he is converted by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's now a, a missionary who will go on this first a missionary trip. So, so far, in terms of individual conversions, we've had a treasurer, the Ethiopian eunuch. We've had a Pharisee, who is Saul. We've had a centurion, who is Cornelius. And now we have a politician, this Sergius Paulus, because he's a deputy, a proconsul in, in the island of Cyprus. And so this is what they're doing. They're trusting the Lord. They're trusting the power of God's word. And then just a word about these men that we have here. Um, there are five men who are listed. We, we see the truth of Ephesians 4, verse 11. It says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Um, these, are, these are an example we have of some prophets and teachers. So when we read of Barnabas and of Simeon and of Lucius, Manium, and Saul, some of these may have been prophets and teachers. Some of them were only prophets. Some may have been only teachers. And we see that Saul and Barnabas will be evangelists as well. But just, just a word or so about each one of these. Barnabas, we have, we have met and seen and been following him, how he truly lives up to his name. Barnabas means son um, of comfort, consolation, and that was a name that they gave to him. Um, his name was Joseph, but they called him Barnabas because he was such an encouraging and comforting man. Um, he was an encourager. He was a servant. He, he would give. He, he would defend others. We, we should all ask the Lord to give us um, much of the character traits of, of Barnabas. And he will be with us in this whole first missionary journey. Then there's Simeon, um, called also Niger. And this means that he would have been from, from the north of Africa. Lucius of Cyrene, that was also north of Africa in today's Libya. And then Manian, there's something very specific about him, that he was brought up with Herod. The word brought up could also have the sense of being a foster brother. He was, in essence, someone who, who was raised in the same home or they went to the same tutor. Um, in some way, they were brought up together. We don't know how official it was in terms of of being adopted by Herod's father or not. But they, they were raised together. And then we have Saul. And we all, we all know Saul. And we will see this very um, passage where he becomes Paul. And we, we will start calling him Paul from this point on. And in verse 9 is where we have the change. One is his Hebrew name. One is his um, Greek name. Now about prayer and fasting. This, this was part of the preliminary that we see um, of the church. Before they were sent forth, they prayed and they fasted. Um, in verse 2 it says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, this minister to the Lord would be their worship. They were worshiping God and in a, in a season of fasting. The Holy Ghost said, and, and either through one of those prophets or they heard it audibly, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And then verse 3 says, And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. 
So they, they were fasting already, and that could be a fasting indicating their d- desire for guidance. But then even when they knew who was to be sent, they still continued praying and fasting. Maybe that was now for guidance to know where to go, or simply for God's protection along the way. But just, just a word uh, about the fasting element connected to prayer. Um, it's not often that we have sermons on, on fasting, and that, that concept could be very easily misunderstood. A lot of Christians today think that fasting is from the old dispensation. That was an Old Testament thing. But it's not true. Here, here we are in the New Testament. And we find the church ministering to the Lord and fasted. And then, and then we see that they were fasting and praying. When they're setting them apart, laying their hands. This is where we have all these things still today. When a man is ordained to the ministry, that he would be um, with, with hands upon him. Where we, this is a simple act where we're asking the Lord to bless him. And this is, this is an act where we're, uh, our prayers are, as it, uh, as it were, Conducing God's blessing to this very man. We're praying that God would bless him. And our hands are showing love. Our hands are showing a, a comfort. And, and this reality that this man is not taking his call on his own. But it's coming from these men. And if these men are, are elders and pastors, they had someone putting the hands over them. And, and this concept of, of having been set apart with the laying on of hands has then this connection all the way to these ancient days of these first apostles who were who were ordaining elders um, and pastors in their very day. So it's it's really showing in essence that this man's not going on his own. He's going through the authority of the Lord, and we got our authority from the Lord. And and we're all we're not saying we're the final authority with laying this hand. We're actually saying, Lord, with thine authority, set this man apart. But they fasted. Um, l- let me say a few things about fasting. And of everything I'm going to say, especially in terms of the purpose for fasting, there will be one thing in common to, to all of these, um, to all of these ways. Um, what are some differences? What are some different ways to fast? These are examples we take from the Bible. Um, in terms of the amount of people, there are, in essence, these two ways. It can be individual fasting, where you fast on your own. That is exactly what Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He was applying to personal fasting, even a kind of fasting that you don't go around communicating that you're doing. It would be a fasting for devotional purposes. But then there's also communal fasting, and this is the fasting that we see in the text, where a greater group of people come together to fast. And then there's also a difference connected to the food item that would be avoided. Um, and, and in that sense, we can speak of partial fast or absolute fast. And a partial fast would be where only certain foods are abstained from. A, a classic example is when Daniel and his three friends choose to abstain from those foods that came from the table of the king. And they asked if they could live without that food for 10 days, that their countenances could be observed, and if, it, if they were found healthy and well, if they could keep to that diet. So then for three years they ate another diet. They, they were fasting from the food that came from the king. Um, 
That was a partial fast. But then there are absolute fasts. And examples here are when Moses and Elijah, when they fasted for 40 days from food and water. And of course, when we get to that point of water for so many days, we know that those were supernatural events, as when Jesus also fasted for 40 days. And then another thing may, might be the time factor. And time, not how long the fast is, but, but how, how constant or how sporadic. There are occasional fasts, like this seems to have been. There's no indication that, that this was always a Wednesday and they were fasting. It's possible that they just thought, we, we need a fast, we need guidance, we need direction. And there was a regular fast, but this, this is what's amazing. When you, read, when you read the Old Testament, you might get the thought that maybe the regular fast was once a week or three times a week. That's how the Pharisees did it and the disciples of John. But the regulated fast in God's Word was only one, and it was only once a year. It was on the Day of Atonement. There's absolutely no other fast that was imposed upon the people other than one day in all year's calendar. And, and, and this kind of shows that fasting was not really meant to be the, the pinnacle, as it were, of activities of the church. And it, and it already shows that it's only for those times of great and necessary um, occasions and so these are the purposes that we find fasting in the Bible. Um, it may be for devotion, like the one that Jesus taught about in the Sermon on the Mount, just for your own private devotion. That is, that is you who set when you should do it or not, and it would be for whatever needs might be in your life, and that you would see a, a, a great need of the Lord's guidance. An example in the Bible is Anna, that prophetess, who, who was fasting because of profound devotion and praise. To the Lord. It may be for protection. When you sense a great need for protection, remember Esther. She, she understood that her life was on the line. She asked for three days of fasting before she went to speak to the king in behalf of her people. Um, it may be because of mourning. Um, something happened that makes you very sad and you can't think of food for a long time. Um, we have one example after Saul, the king, died. The men of Jabesh Gilead, who were brave enough to go fetch his body and bury it. And then in grief, they fasted for seven days. Um, and then it can be out of repentance. Um, you, you realize you, you are convicted of the Lord and you realize that the, the sins are serious and repentance is necessary. And the Ninevites were one who... When they were convicted of their sin, they also had the warning that there would be impending judgment. And the king declared a fast in all of Nineveh. And that was because of repentance. They were mourning for their sins. And then one more, and it may be when there's a need for guidance or direction. And this is exactly, most likely, why the church was praying um, in Acts 13. They, they wanted to know of the Lord who should go, where should they go. And, and also, you could say, in, in going, we need thy protection, Lord. They cannot go into this whole world out there um, with the message of the cross. They will be found by people who will not like them, who will oppose them. And so we need thy help. And in all of these 
different situations. Remember, I said that they're all going to have one thing in common. And it would be in the sense of need. Think of fasting brings the whole concept of food, of course. And why do we eat food? Because we need it or else we die. When we put food aside, we're in essence saying, I need God or I die. And I need God more than I need food. So for a while, I will not cook and I will not clean and I won't have time for these things because the need is so great and I need a focus and I need a read and I need to be on my knees and I need to pray. And that's where fasting and praying hold hands together. And, and it's a need. It's a spiritual need. And as we need food for our spirit, physical needs, we need the word for our spiritual need. And so we forego food for a while. It may be for a season. This is where God's word has, has no commands as to how long it should be, um, exactly what you should do or not do in those days. This, like Jesus' teaching, is very important. Basically, he was teaching, just make sure you don't go around parading this kind of fast that is wrong. And it was prevalent in the days of Jesus. We spoke of all these purposes, but you know why the Pharisees fasted? They fasted to be seen of men. That's what Jesus taught in in Matthew 6. That was their purpose for fasting. They were fasting to show off that they were so pious. They, they were fasting so that people would think of them as people who fasted. And, and, and that's very important to note. And, and this is where perhaps when there is communal calls for fasting is where we need to be more careful. Because yes, people will be knowing. But it's probably better not to be talking about it. And not to be going around outside of the circles of who's there fasting. And, and just saying, oh, guess what? We're all fasting. And we need to be careful not to be proud about something um, because the whole idea is for us to simply be humbled and to be acknowledging our great and need of the Lord. It's our hunger for Him. So we fast of food because um, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then just a, a, another word before we leave, really, really quickly. Fasting and praying is very powerful. And and again, not because the fasting element adds anything mystical to it, but where we see fasting and praying is where we see people, when they do it in the right way, who are really meaning it and who are really needing it. And so you have Daniel and his friends, after they fasted in that way for three years, they were the preferred ones for the noble task that Nebuchadnezzar had for them. They, They were the top choice. When when Esther asked for those three days of prayer, it was connected to that fasting and praying that all of the Jews in, in the Persian Empire were spared. And then you think of Moses. He was 40 days fasting. Well, he brought back the law of God. When, when we think of the Ten Commandments, we have it in writing because he brought those two tables of stone after 40 days of fasting. And certainly speaking to the Lord, prayer and fasting. And it brought forth the law of God. The Ninevites who were told that in 40 days their city would be destroyed, they repented and they fasted and they were spared. 
And when Jesus begins his ministry, he goes through 40 days of fasting. And then you have the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's there's no better example of someone's prayer and fasting and the fruit that it produced. Because it was the best and the purest um, ministry that a man or a woman, it can't compare to any ministry, Jesus' ministry. And he began with fasting and praying. And so it's precious to see this, this harmony of what prayer and fasting can do. And again, remember, again, not because fasting adds anything magical to it. It's just because when you really, 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 really see your need, you're going to end up fasting as well. It's almost something that's brought to you, not so much something you have to calculate coldly. And this is what the church is doing. And, and this, beloved, I read some commentaries that, that, that do agree with this. So it's not just one commentary, it's others who say, the, the very fact that we're here, a church in New Jersey, you know, the church went from, from Jerusalem throughout the face of the world. And so any, any preacher throughout anywhere in the world could be saying, you know, we're here today with God's word and you've heard the gospel and it was in connection with that for prayer and fasting because that was the first missionary journey. And it's from that one that there was a second and a third. And, and yes, we can imagine that there were others in Jerusalem sending people here and there, but we have this recorded, the, the, this first missionary journey in, in this direction, in the direction of the West especially, and it started with prayer and fasting. And you've been seeing as we've been following the book of Acts, um, how many sermons really we could be focusing on the power of prayer. We just saw this last time. The church was praying. They thought Peter would die, but they prayed for his release. He's knocking at the door in the middle of the night. Their prayers fetched the angel from heaven and Peter from prison and brought him to their door. Think of the precious analogies there. They are asking God for prayer. So they are knocking on heaven's door when they hear someone knocking at their door. And remember this encouraging thought too. It wasn't great faith that they had because when they heard it was Peter, they didn't believe. And so even little prayers or faith, prayers with little faith can bring angels from heaven and fetch people out of prison. And now we see prayer with this kind of zeal um, bringing the gospel to the whole world and beginning in Cyprus. And so in our second point, we we go to the preaching and the resistance. This, This will be quite quick because it will lead us straight to our third point, power and authority. Right here, I just want to introduce this um. This reality that this is the first place they go. Some people think it's very likely that it was because that was the island that Barnabas had come from. It was a good place to start. That island needed the gospel. Barnabas had contacts there. Um, and He certainly has relatives. You can imagine how Barnabas' heart was beating with desire to reach his kinfolk, his friends for Christ. And so they set sail to Cyprus. It was 60 miles off the coast of the Mediterranean, um, um, in the Mediterranean Sea. And Paul here began a procedure that he continued throughout his ministry. He would go to a synagogue 
and there um, exposed from the Old Testament that the prophecies about a Messiah were fulfilled. This Messiah who was promised to our forefathers, he has come. And so when it says that they went around preaching the word in verse 5, it says when they were at Salamis, Salamis was like on the very east coast of Cyprus. They're going to go all the way to the west coast. That's where they see Pathos, where they're going to meet Sergius Paulus. And what did they do in verse 5? They preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had also John to their minister. It's just a summary we, we will see next um, time, Lord willing, in verse 17, when they go to another city called Antioch of Pisidia, there will be a long example of a sermon that Paul delivers there. And we'll see parts of, of, of his preaching um, the gospel in these places that was probably very similar from place to place because he was teaching people for the first time that the man Jesus Christ who who died in Jerusalem, that he is the Christ, the Savior. But as, as they arrive um, in, in Pathos, the, the other side um, of Cyprus, they meet with two realities. There is one who is interested, there is one who is opposed. So they meet with interest, they meet with opposition. And remember, Luke, Luke is not describing everything that happened. But by the inspiration of the Spirit, Luke delineates a certain, certain things that, that God wants to be registered and recorded. And, and this Sergius Paulus is one whom, whom we will hear about. He will be the convert in this city that will be a great blessing, but not without opposition. Um, and, and here we start realizing why prayer is so important. And, and beloved, th- this is how we need to think, how we should not only pray Sundays, but we should be praying um, for our missionaries and for other pastors in the ministry. Um, and if you know of other missionaries beyond our denomination, we should pray for them. Because as they go forth and bring the gospel, Satan does not like that. And he's the one who's the greatest opposition And he uses human individuals who manifest that opposition. And this is what we see in the person of of this um, bar Jesus. So look at this opposition first. In verse 6 it says, When they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet. So it's someone pretending to be religious. He was a Jew whose name was bar Jesus. And that means son of Jesus, or son of Joshua, or son of the Savior. Because Jesus means Savior. And, and later, when we, are spoken, we hear in verse 8, another name, Elimus. Because that is his name by interpretation. And, and the name Elimus is the name that does mean a magician, a magi, or a sorcerer. This man... Look at what we read in verse 8. He withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. And the way that Paul and Barnabas meet this Sergius Paulus is also very interesting because it's by invitation. In verse 7 it says, which was with the deputy. So, so that bar Jesus is like a counselor or he's someone there at the court with this deputy. 
of the country, Sergius Paulus, who was Paulus. He was a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. So he's been hearing that there are these missionaries in the island. He must have heard something of the message and he's interested. But he has this man, possibly a a, a counselor in the court, who is bringing in opposition. He is withstanding. That means he's opposing. He's resisting. Later when Paul gives um, his, his rebuke, in verse 10 he says, Wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And, and that tells us what he was doing. He, he was perverting what was right. So what Paul was teaching as truth, Elimus would say, no, it's not true. When, when Paul was saying Jesus is the Christ, Elimus was opposing that and saying, no, that he's not the Christ. So he was perverting He was making crooked, another way to translate this is that he was making crooked the right way of the Lord. See, the right way is is not crooked, but perverting is to make it crooked. So, preaching and resistance. He started to preach, and this is the resistance. But let's go on to our third point, where we see the power and authority. And it's in this sense that it brings to our mind a lot where we've been in the morning services. Because Hezekiah in Isaiah, he's a pious man and he loves the Lord. But there's that Rabshakeh and there's that Sennacherib who keeps perverting the right way of the Lord. And they are powerful and they are mighty. And, and Hezekiah is from a kingdom that's lesser. And, and not, not from a kingdom, but from a position, a social position. They're, they're foreigners. Excuse me, I'm confusing the two. Um, Hezekiah is a king of a lesser country than Assyria. Bring that all back to, to here. Paul and Barnabas are foreigners. They are missionaries into this island. They, they don't have renown. Yes, Barnabas knows some people, but Sergius Paulus is a man of position. He's a man of authority. And, and this Bar-Jesus, he's someone who has some element of authority. And he's perverting the ways of the Lord that these men are bringing. And, and just like Hezekiah trusting the true God, he's in a more favorable position. He has a lot more than Sennacherib has. The same thing we could say of Paul and Barnabas. Yes, in all their lowliness, they do trust the true God. So they really are in a higher position than this Elimus. And, and this is shown, this authority that they had is shown in this very sharp um, rebuke that Paul gives to him. It's, it's in the beginning of this um, rebuke that Saul's name is in the text changed to Paul. In verse 10 starts his dealing. I'm going to separate, as we look at this rebuke, we'll, we'll see three things. There are three steps in how Paul deals with them. First, it's the rebuke. He rebukes them, him, with four, there's, there's a fourfold rebuke. One phrase after another, very loaded with, with sharp rebukes. And then he exhorts him. And then he even brings a curse upon him. There are these three things that are happening. First, the rebuke. 
four things. He, he called him the son of the devil. And you can see what he's doing. He's, he's playing with his name. You're not the son of the Savior. You're the son of the devil. And then he says, you are an enemy of all righteousness. You, you are perverting what is right. So you're an enemy of that which is right. And then he says, you're full of deceit, because that's what subtlety means. And he says, and you're full of villainy. You're full of what's evil, because that's what mischief means. Fourfold rebuke. And then he exhorts him. He says, in essence, what he's doing wrong. Wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Won't you stop making crooked what God has made straight? And when he says this, what we have here is someone who's like an, an, a complete antagonist to John the Baptist. Remember that John the Baptist was making straight everything that was crooked. And this Simon, he is making crooked everything that is straight. He's an anti-John the Baptist, if you will. He was distracting Sergius Paulus. He was probably diverting the attention of the proconsul. He was speaking evil of the word of God. He was deceiving Sergius Paulus and making him think that this was evil when it really was good. And that's, that's what he was doing. Matthew Henry says this, the commentator. He says, And those who are in any way instrumental to prejudice people against the truths and ways of Christ are doing the devil's work. This Elimus, though called Bar-Jesus, a son of Jesus, was really a child of the devil, bore his image and did his lusts and served his interests. And beloved, I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but you, know, you might be sharing the gospel with someone who may be of some interest and they are having some attention, but sometimes there may be a friend right there beside them. And that friend is, is just looking at something else or bringing some other subjects to make you kind of stop talking or bringing questions that have nothing to do with what you're discussing that is theological and about the Lord and about heaven, about salvation. And what you notice is that there's really a spiritual battle going on because this friend is actually wanting to make crooked these straight ways of the Lord. And it might be happening right then, or it might be happening when this friend goes home and he says, oh, you shouldn't talk to, to that friend of yours who's a Christian because, you know, they, they just, you can't trust them. They're just so fanatic in their ways and they, they, they will dissuade, dissuade you from listening to God's word. And Matthew Henry was saying, anyone who, who is doing that, he's actually doing the devil's work. This is exactly what this Elimus was doing. And then, of course, after, after bringing the rebukes and bringing the exhortation comes this very serious curse. Now, the way we can think of this is that Paul here was, in essence, with the office of a prophet. It almost makes us think of the Old Testament, doesn't it? When we see Paul saying in verse 11, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. 
And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness. And he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Notice Paul is making very clear that that's, that's not his personal vindictive desire. He is, he is acting as a prophet. God has told him this will happen. So he begins saying, the hand of the Lord is upon thee. So he's the one who will do this to you. And then he says, you will be blind. He see, he's not saying, I hope you will be blind. It's, it's not Paul's will. Paul is just a tool right here. He's, he's the prophet saying, thus saith the Lord. His hand is heavy upon you. And the way he will show his discipline upon you is that you will be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. So that's the curse. And we have to qualify. It's a, it's a temporary curse. And we will go back to that. Now, just really three thoughts here in closing as we look at this whole passage. Notice verse 11 and 12. This, this is one of the most precious contrasts, at least for one side it's precious, for the other it's serious in a warning. But verse 11 and verse 12 present two drastic contrasts. In verse 11, Elimus lost his sight. He was in darkness, and he was trying to find someone to lead the way. And this is the reality of his soul coming upon his body. He had been in spiritual darkness. Now he's experiencing physical darkness. In verse 12, we read, Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, there's even a thought that he's using his eyes to see, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. It's interesting that he sees, but he's astonished by the doctrine. He heard of Christ. He's heard that this Christ resurrected. He's heard that he has ascended into heaven, that he died for sinners. And that's the doctrine that he's believing. And he's he's seeing that what Paul has said is true. That the Lord's hand really was heavy upon him. Uh, Sergius Paulus understands that, that Paul is not a magician to make him blind. He, he even made it clear. It's not me doing this. It's the hand of the Lord. The same Lord who was raised from the grave and who died on the cross for sinners. It, he's the one doing this. And Sergius Paulus's eyes are opened to see Christ as a Savior. So while one man's eyes are blinded and the spiritual darkness that he has is now a physical darkness that he experiences, the deputy who had been in darkness because he was lost, now he has spiritual sight and he's in the light because he's converted. One man was made to see that he was lost and is in that lostness now. The other had been lost, but now he is found. And he sees. So Elimus, who tried to make Sergius not see the Son of God, he was plagued by not being able to see the shining sun in the sky. He tried to keep the deputy in darkness, so the Lord made him enter darkness. And when you think of those two, The difference that one is in darkness and one is seeing the light is simply this in verse 12. The deputy, when he saw that was done, believed. It is faith. It is not that the deputy was better. 
It was simply that he believed. And, and, and this shows this reality that, that can bring even hope for someone who is still blind. Now I'll come back to our, the third last thought. But the second last thought is this. We, we see in this passage the truth of God's sovereignty and missions. This all was, was orchestrated by God. It was the Holy Spirit who set Paul and Barnabas. He's the one who put it even in their hearts to pray and to fast and to want to go on this first missionary journey. And, and Paul, God wanted to save a man called Sergius Paulus. He's the only man that we, that we have listed here as a convert. But you can imagine there would have been many others very likely. But there's this man, Sergius Paulus, who needs to hear the gospel. And so... God will send missionaries in that direction. And they go. Um, It was 200 miles away from Antioch. There was a sea in between Antioch and Cyprus. But God will save this man. So he sends two missionaries. He sends two faithful and zealous missionaries. And in their obedience and in their trust, in the power of the word, they go proclaiming the gospel, even though there are opposers. And then God saves those whom he wants to save. And we should never allow the truth of God's sovereignty to make us feel that it's an excuse to go out and evangelize. Because remember, you've heard this many times, God in his sovereignty, yes, will save souls, but in his sovereignty, he ordained means. And his means are the preaching of the word, So there will have to be people proclaiming the Bible. There will have to be people meeting a Sergius Paulus, by the way. There will have to be preachers, evangelists, missionaries. And and it can be people who aren't officially that, but it might be your neighbor and you're called to go talk to him. Or you invite your neighbor and you have some tea and you'll be able to share about the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And we do all of this trusting in the sovereignty of God. Our trust is not in our eloquence. Our trust is not in, 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 in the power of people to believe. Our trust is that God is gracious to save whom He will. And then this last thought is to see that in wrath, God did remember mercy. Even when we think of how severely Bar-Jesus was rebuked and receiving this curse... We could say this, Elimus is struck blind, but he's not struck dead. And we have seen examples of a husband and a wife who were struck dead. And when you look at what they did, it seems like possibly that wouldn't have been as serious as a man here who's opposing the preachers face to face. But God acted in mercy. And here's the mercy. Also, he struck him blind only for a season and so he remained alive and at some point he would be able to see again Matthew Henry says something very precious he says yet his sight shall be restored to try if he will be led to repentance either by the judgments of God or by his mercies you could, ima- you could imagine how that man would be, perhaps in bitterness, but acknowledging what he said came true, and I'm still blind. But there was that day that Alimus saw. 
and light came back to his eyes, could that have had an effect to warm his heart? Either before, with the judgment, or with the thoughts of mercy. But when mercy really came and his eyesight came back, how powerful that could have been for his own soul. But now, this is our comfort. We, we don't know. We don't know if Elimus ever believed, if ever he became a son of God who had been a false son of Jesus. But we do know that what happened to him was used by the grace of God to convert Sergius Paulus. Because it says that the deputy, when he saw what was done, and, and now we see this happening. Um, God has used those miracles and signs that were to heal people, to call attention, and people would then listen to the gospel and believe in Jesus. And in this case, God is using not a miracle of healing, but a miracle of judgment. But notice this reality. It's a miracle of a judgment that will have healing in time. This man is blind, but he will see. This is what Sergius Paulus saw. And he believed the message. And this is what you and I have. If, if you're still someone who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the message of the gospel is simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Paul and Barnabas and the other disciples, the other apostles preached with all authority that that man who died on the cross was not a criminal. He was dying for criminals. If you believe in Jesus, you'll have the certainty that all your sins are forgiven because he took our sins when he died on Calvary's cross. That was the message they were bringing to all peoples. And Sergius Paulus believed, I need a Savior. I am a sinner. And I need a Savior. And I see how the Savior works even as he's not here. This is a friend of mine. He's blind. And I hope he will see one day. But this has given me attention to believe in the Word. And I pray it does the same to the hearts here today who may be found here, but still in, in a darkness that is spiritual. May, may your eyes see the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Him with all your heart, soul, and mind. And if you are a true believer, let us, let us believe in the power of the Word. Let us trust it. We, we have no power, but Christ does, and He's still working. And let us trust that. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God Almighty, we thank Thee for having blessed Sergius Paulus with the truth, having opened his eyes while, while Elimus' eyes were closed. Lord, we do not know what has happened other than what may have been in tradition. But we do thank Thee, Lord, that the gospel reached Cyprus and from there went to other lands and, and from all those places it arrived here. And we pray, Lord, that we would be um, a part of thy church, that would be mindful, that we would consider places where, where thy word is desperately needed, and that we would bring thy word to those lands, Lord, and to those places. We do pray for the missionaries who are in, in every place that they minister, Lord. Strengthen the hands of missionaries of thine throughout this whole entire world. 
from, from the different ministries, from the different churches. We pray that they would remain faithful to thy word, that they would seek to bring Christ to the people, that they would be examples of Christ. And we pray that thou would protect them, especially if they're in countries that are dangerous, where there is persecution and where being converted is prohibited by law and it makes their lives, Lord, so dangerous. Please be with missionaries in, in China, in, in Iraq, in Iran, in, in, in North Korea, the believers who are there, Lord, in a land that is so close to the gospel. We pray, Lord, without open that land and that they may hear the gospel freely. And we pray, Lord, all these things... In Jesus' precious name, amen.